0: year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And I'm Farrah Dowdy. And strange as it might seem especially since we're a history podcast, the news can actually play a pretty big role in what we choose to cover as a topics. pretty big role. And that's because history, or at least what we know about it, is constantly changing. It's always evolving. And new discoveries are made, theories are formed, old mysteries are sometimes solved, or sometimes they're made even more complicated. Ned <laughs> Kelly, case in point. Exactly. And in all of these cases, one thing holds true. The breaking news gives us a great opportunity to review what we know about a particular topic. So it makes a great opportunity for us to talk about them again.
2: But of course, we don't have a chance to cover all of the historical finds that are unearthed in any given year. So last year, we decided we would do a real newsy kind of topic, a year end wrap up. And we ended up recording an episode that covered a few of 2010s big discoveries that we thought were either cool or just, I don't know, fascinating in some way that appealed to us. And this year, we've decided to do the same, but we're going to step it up a notch, too. We're going to do two episodes of historical finds, uh, things that have been unearthed in in 2011 that we just thought were really neat.
1: Yeah, and we've called it Unearthed in 2011. That's the title, but of course not all of these discoveries literally came as the result of digs and archaeological work. Some of the some of them are just finds that came from all sorts of places, from the ocean, for example, or even from someone's musty old attic. You never know. Or
2: somebody just putting two and two together and, and making a new discovery from research or or finds that were already existing.
1: Yeah, that's true. Some of these that we're going to discuss are findings based on things that were dug up either within the last couple of years or in some cases decades ago. So it's not something that was Necessarily unearthed this year, but the finding was unearthed. It this just year. has some important component of the process that happened
2: in 2011 to make our list. But this is, of course, by no means a comprehensive list. I mean, we really had to to whittle it down, pick and choose here. The only common thread, though, is that there are discoveries that we found interesting, ones that had some kind of interesting story behind them, and most of them had some kind of tie in to Themes that we've covered a lot. And I mean, I I found that appealing for a year-end wrap-up podcast. We have hit on themes this year. I don't know, shipwrecks comes to mind.
1: Medicine.
2: Medicine, uh, historic alcohol, historic dogs. So you're going to notice a few of those themes popping up in both of these
1: episodes. Yes, you will. And that goes for the first one that we're going to talk about, which is pirates. A lot of people know Captain Morgan as a brand of rum. Captain Coke, anyone, but Captain Henry Morgan was an actual 17th century Welsh pirate, and the wreck of one of his ships was found off Panama by a team of U.S. archaeologists this August. So just a little background on Morgan and his ships. He was a privateer sailing on England's behalf, so part of his work was defending England's interests, and he also pioneered expeditions to the New World. In the late 17th century, he went up against Spain, which at the time had a pretty tight grip on the Caribbean, and Morgan wanted to weaken Spain's influence a bit by taking Panama City. And so in 1671, he set out to capture a Spanish fort called Castillo de San Lorenzo, which was on a cliff overlooking the mouth of the Chagres River, the only water passageway between the Caribbean and Panama City. And Morgan and his men ultimately succeeded here, but they lost five ships, including their flagship called the Satisfaction, in the process. And that was due to some pretty rough seas that were surrounding the fort and also a reef known as the Lajas Reef nearby.
2: So the discovery that these U.S. archaeologists made this year is presumably from one of those five ships, right? They made it by doing a magnetometer survey, which looks for metal by finding any kind of deviation in the Earth's magnetic field. And what they ended up pulling up to the surface included a portion of the starboard side of a wooden ship's hull and a set of unopened cargo boxes and chests that were covered in coral. And of course, everybody including Us (laughs) thinking like maybe this is some kind of pirate treasure. Maybe this is Captain Morgan's treasure. So we were unable to find out whether the cargo was opened at the time the story broke. um, It it had it was yet to be determined, and we haven't heard anything since then. But according to a Discovery News article about the fine, there are at least a few people out there who are hoping that the boxes and chests don't contain gold or something, but contain liquor, and you can probably figure. why some folks might be hoping for that.
1: Yeah, it's because there's kind of an interesting twist to this story, to the story of this discovery. Though the research team included archaeologists and divers from Texas State University and some other volunteers, the project was actually funded by Captain Morgan USA, the maker of Captain Morgan's rum. And they stepped in to help when the research team ran out of funding, and that funding actually allowed the team to do that magnetometer survey. So in a statement, Tom Herbst, the brand director of Captain Morgan USA, said, quote, When the opportunity arose for us to help make this discovery mission possible, it was a natural fit for us to get involved. The artifacts uncovered during this mission will help bring Henry Morgan and his adventures to life in a way never thought possible.
2: So there you go. I'm kind of envisioning these Captain Morgan commercials maybe in 2012, 2013, with like footage from the archaeological dives, and maybe you could, if they were re- really willing to put out some more money, some uh, Rolling Stones satisfaction. Oh, yeah. Around. I mean, who knows? It's, it's a brilliant marketing
1: move on their part. <laughs> it
2: sounds like it. But prior to making this discovery, the team also found a collection of iron cannons in the same general area last year. But I think we're really most excited, as probably most people are, to find out what's in the chest.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it'll be another entry for our Historical Spirits episodes.
2: Maybe. So moving on to the next couple entries on our list, we mentioned earlier that we have talked about dogs some this year, specifically war dogs. And they come up in random podcasts, too. But we've got two interesting pieces of news from 2011 that have to do with our canine
1: friends. We do. There were a couple of discoveries this year that gave us some insight into the history of domesticated dogs and the role that they played in humans' lives. The first, for dog lovers especially, may be somewhat disturbing, though, so just be forewarned. In January, scientists released a new analysis of a bone fragment found in Heinz Cave in southwestern Texas, which evidence shows was occupied by a group of hunter-gatherers about 9,000 years ago. And scientists performed genetic testing on the bone fragment and figured out that it belonged to a dog rather than a coyote or a wolf or a fox or something else, making it the earliest known evidence of dog domestication in the Americas. It predates other examples by about 8,000 years. And the dog was probably around 25 to 30 pounds and may have been similar to some breeds of Mexican or Peruvian dogs.
2: But we mentioned some of you might not like this story very much, and that's because this dog was not just man's best friend. The bone fragment was found in dried human feces, which suggests (laughs) the dog might have been man's best meal, too. So seems, Good one, Dablino. <laughs> yeah,
1: there's a lot to learn about the role domesticated dogs played in humans' lives over the years. I mean, they could have been used for chores and things as well, but they were food mm, in made a some meal cases, every now and apparently. Then.
2: We do have a, a more uplifting dog-related story, though. Hopefully. I, yeah, hopefully, depending on how you look at it. In February, Discovery News reported that the burial remains of a husky-like dog that lived 7,000 years ago were found in Siberia. And it was an unusual kind of grave pit because the dog was buried uh, in a in a site that also contained the partial remains of five different human skeletons. And DNA and stable isotope analysis showed that the dog ate what humans ate today, probably better than... Uh, most people can say about their modern pampered dogs today, but... this Well, pampered dogs, I and mean, come on, Sarah, <laughs> you know they're eating well. Eating pâté or something. Mm-hmm. Um, this dog, however, ate stuff like fish and deer and some small plants, so uh, researchers assume that it probably lived and worked right alongside humans.
1: Yeah, and there was certain wear and tear on the dog skeleton that showed that it probably helped transport loads during the course of daily chores. Some fractures also suggest the dog may have participated in hunting, although there's always the chance that its injuries were the result of being struck by humans. However, the fact that the dog was advanced in age when it died and the way in which it was buried indicates that it was likely cared for and cared about, too. Robert Losey, lead author of the study about the dog burial, said in a Discovery News story about it, quote, based on how northern indigenous people understand animal in historic times, I think people burying this particular dog saw it as a thinking social being, perhaps on par with humans in many ways. Well, I think it was even
2: buried with objects, too, which seems like a very kind of human touch for, for something like that. Moving on, though, we have been talking about medicine a lot this year, and this is kind of the ultimate entry in the medical medicine-related category. And this is a good example, too, of a find that the actual discovery happened decades ago, way back in the 70s, but it's only recently that new interpretation of what was found has has come up. So back in the 1970s, divers excavated the shipwreck off the coast of Tuscany, and items aboard the ship suggested that it was about 2,000 years old, that it had originated in Greece, and that when it went down, it was on some sort of trading mission. But what caught the attention of researcher Emanuela Appetiti when she later read about the ship's cargo, you know, the discovery, was this cache of medical supplies it had on board. For instance, a copper bleeding cup. We've talked about blood this year, too. How about that, Tablina? A surgical hook, vials, a mortar, and most importantly, a tin container that still contained these quarter-sized gray-green pills, 2,000-year-old pills that were underwater for all of
1: that time. Apatiti's husband, Alan Tweed, is a historian in the botany department at the National Museum of Natural History who studies just such ancient medicines. Except for that the whole of his career, he's basically had to work off medical texts alone. So Apatiti and Tweed knew that these tablets weren't just interesting as shipwreck artifacts. They were the first known samples of ancient medicine. According to Smithsonian Magazine, Towade said, quote, I was going to do everything I could to get them.
2: And it took a little while after 18 months. Mi- Months negotiating with Italy's Department of Antiquities, Tuade got two samples of the tablets and recruited Robert Fleischer, who is the head geneticist at the Smithsonian Center for Conservation and Evolutionary Genetics, to tackle the analysis aspect because Tuade's work normally requires looking at texts, as you mentioned, illustrations. I think I read he, he speaks 12 languages, so he needed to get somebody who could look under the microscope on this one, and Fleischer was skeptical at first because he didn't really think any viable genetic material would be left after 2,000 years, but he was convinced he got to work and started to extract DNA from the tablets and compare it to the National Institutes of Health Gene Bank, which of course has records of all sorts of plants.
1: The first few ingredient lists that he came up with weren't right. Twade could tell that they contained plants not yet present in Greece 2,000 years ago. But finally, after seven years and using the most sophisticated DNA techniques, Fleischer discovered a genetic makeup that gelled with historical texts. And that include carrot, parsley, alfalfa, celery, wild onion, radish, yarrow, hibiscus, and sunflower bound in clay. Sunflower aside, which the researchers believe was a modern contaminant, those ingredients fit the bill for a 2,000-year-old cure for stomach ailments, common, of course, among sailors. Exactly. So Tuway even thinks that this kind of tablet, I mean,
2: we mentioned it was a quarter size, so it's not something you would just take as is. He figures it was probably something you would drop in a glass of water or wine or even vinegar, which sounds like it would turn your stomach rather yeah. than settle it, but who knows. So, there's one interesting last point to this, uh, this story, though. In May of 2011, Tuait and his wife presented the findings in Italy, and by chance, they met with some of The divers who had explored the wreck in the 1970s and the divers were able to explain that sunflower contamination they said that they had kept their oxygen tanks outdoors uh, near the place where they were staying before going out on the dive and the area they were staying was filled with sunflower fields so it's quite possible that something got onto their dive tank and ultimately onto the aluminum container or the tin container
1: rather and um, onto the pills It's good to have that explanation. It was a big deal for Tawade to finally see some of the medicine he studied in action, and he told History.com, quote, the information that you have in a text is always exposed to the risk of being only theoretical. And so until you have physical evidence of what you have in the text, you never know if what you're working on has been used in ancient daily life and practice.
2: And I thought this was such an interesting multidisciplinary example here that both of... uh, these researchers really needed the other researchers' work to to make sense of the find. I thought it was pretty cool. So our final entry for this list is probably the favorite author of many of our listeners. At least she's a, a common request.
1: Yep. Just this month, the news broke that British author Dr. Paula Byrne had unearthed a portrait of... None other than Jane Austen. And Austen is, of course, best known for writing books like Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, but she initially published her books anonymously, and she wasn't well known until after her death. So, why is this new portrait such a big deal? Well, according to a BBC News story about the recent discovery, there are currently only two recognized portraits of Austen, which I never realized before. One was a watercolor painted by her sister, Cassandra, whom Jane was really close to, and that's the only portrait that it's never been contested and i believe it shows her from the back so not much of a <laughs> detailed portrait
2: yeah uh, the new portrait, though, which Burns' husband, Jonathan Bate, picked up at an auction, is a pencil drawing on vellum that has the words, Miss Jane Austen, inscribed on the back. And it was probably drawn around 1815, uh, just for comparison there. Austen died in 1817, so late in her life. And it's supposed to bear pretty good resemblance to Jane Austen, or at least since we <laughs> don't have a terribly great idea of what she looked like, it at least bears the resemblance to her family. Apparently the sitter in the portrait has, quote, the long straight Austin nose.
1: Byrne is consulting with various experts to have it authenticated. But, of course, there are several reasons why people might be skeptical of her new find. For one thing, it's been around for a couple hundred years. So you could ask, okay, why hasn't it been authenticated before? Obviously, the person who sold it to her husband didn't think that it was genuine. Also, Byrne has a new book on Austin ready for release. So the timing of the story is really good publicity for her in that respect.
2: Maybe we should mention, too, that the inscription on the back doesn't spell. Austin with an E.
1: Yes, uh, if the news story is correct, it spells it with an I.
2: So that's a little little twist, too, although spellings from the 18th, 19th century are a little hard to rely on in the first place. But that wraps it up for our News Finds of 2011 Part 1 and brings us to
1: Mega Listener Mail. An extended Listener Mail segment. We have missed out on doing the amount of Lister mail we've wanted to lately, but we've gotten so many great letters, postcards, emails from people about episodes that we've done recently, which we've really enjoyed. We've uh, had a, a lot of fun with our research in the last couple of months, and so we wanted to kind of give you guys an idea of what people are saying about some of the podcasts and some of the little tidbits that they're throwing at us that we didn't know before. Okay, so first we want to look at a few emails regarding our gunpowder plot episodes. We did two episodes about the gunpowder plot and received just tons of emails and letters from people about it. People really seem to enjoy it or at least have something to say about it from their own experience. A personal bonfire story. Yeah, so we wanted to share a few of those. The first one is from Heather, and she says, My family and I have just moved back to the States after living in England for four years. My husband is a Brit, and both my children were born there. We celebrated Guy Fawkes Day each year while there. The local village usually had a party at the village hall with food, sausages, candy, apples, etc., and drink from the bar for the adults. There was a judging of the guy where the best of the half dozen guys made by the village children was chosen. These look basically like a scarecrow, old clothing stuffed with straw or newspaper and decorated to look like anyone the child wanted, usually someone famous. The winner got a prize and then the guys may or may not have been tossed on top of the bonfire pile depending on the children's wishes. So I liked
2: that you could keep your effigy if you wanted to.
1: <laughs> the patch of grass under the bonfire site was usually black for the rest of the year, which was funny to me. And she also corrects this on one point, which a few people did, so we should mention this. She says, the penny for the guy thing that children used to do in England was not selling the guy, but collecting change to fund the guy and the celebration. So Makes thank sense. you, Heather. Yeah, it does make sense. Thank you for writing in and telling us your traditions and for letting us know some more about the guy.
2: And I think most... Most of the people we heard from writing in about Guy Fawkes Day were based in England or they were transplants. But we did hear from Jason, who lives in Newfoundland, and he wrote that Guy Fawkes Night is celebrated every year in my native Newfoundland as well. Newfoundland, the most easterly point of North America, was part of Britain until 1949 when it joined the Confederation and became Canada's 10th Province Newfoundland's very unique culture is heavily influenced by Ireland, Scotland, and England, where most of its peoples can lay claim to their ancestry. Uh, so that was neat to know that Guy Fawkes Day really is something that people people take with them wherever they go. It seems.
1: We had another one from Adam, which is on a more somber note, but I still thought it was interesting to share. He says, Each year, the government tries to promote the safety aspect of bonfire night by warning people to take care with sparklers and not to pour petrol on the flames and things like that. However, this year, it seems that there may have been a completely unforeseen tragedy from a fireworks display. One of the worst motorway accidents in the UK, in which seven people died in a multi-car pileup, may have been the result of fireworks smoke obscuring drivers' vision. I don't want to leave my letter on a somber note, so I will say that as a new dad, I had the pleasure of taking my nine-month-old baby boy Dylan to a public fireworks display in my hometown of Harwick, Essex, which he loved, and I can see as having many happy bonfire nights to come, thanks in part to Guy Fox.
2: Probably the coolest piece of Guy fox related mail we got, though, was from Kelsey in Vermont. She's a bartender there, and she sent us a note on some lovely stationery saying, I'm finally writing to tell you that I am a self-proclaimed dork who enjoys creating drink specials based on your historical tidbits, as I also like listening on my way to work. Most of the drinks are more clever than tasty, but I was pretty proud of this one, so I thought I'd share. I call it the Guy Fox." And the specials board would read, Remember, remember, the 5th of November with Pama Campari and gin. You'll dance in the street. It's bitter and sweet, as is all revolution. And uh, she shared the recipe. Maybe we could post that. We we probably want to try it, too, don't we? Yeah, we need to try it. It, it sounds good. I don't know all of the, the ingredients, but she has suggested brands and everything. So um, maybe we'll give this a shot uh, and report back to you guys in the new year.
1: Next, we want to share a few emails and letters related to the Emperor Maximilian episode. And we got a lot on this as well. People
2: love Maximilian.
1: Yes. And this first letter from Sarah, we get a great example of something that we see a lot, which is people with their own expertise writing in to kind of give us a different angle on a topic that we've discussed, which we really like. So Sarah has a background in art history and archaeology, and that's where she's coming from. And she says, I was excited to see that you released a podcast on Emperor Maximilian. And even more so that you mentioned Edouard Manet's series of paintings on the subject of Maximilian's execution. I know you like art history, so I thought I'd share a couple more things about these works. In terms of what we see in the painting, Manet's composition is clearly referencing a work from the early 19th century, Francisco Goya's 3rd of May, 1808. Like in Manet's work, Goya is addressing a contemporary political event involving an occupation by French troops, in this case of Spain, and the central incident of the French soldiers firing on the Spanish is mimicked in Manet's Maximilian paintings. Manet cited Goya in a number of paintings, and in the case of these works, one of the few times that either artist overtly referenced a highly political event.
2: And that email struck me, too, because people do often recommend that we cover 3rd of May. So, (laughs) could be another one of these political art history combo episodes. We also heard from a few people who had some kind of personal insight on the Maximilian story because they are from Mexico and they could give us a little feel for how people really, really uh, what opinion they have of Maximilian there. Uh, the first is from Cristobal, who lives in California, and he says he's from Mexico. And he says, the missus and I were visiting her family near Berlin during the Christmas holiday, and since we were so close, we decided to hop over to Vienna and play tourist for a week. We did all the typical touristy things like visiting castles, churches, Christmas markets, and so on. During the middle of our stay, we signed up for a day tour that would take us to a couple different palaces and other landmarks throughout the city. Sometime between visiting a 300-year-old church and a 400-year-old palace, I asked the guide if she knew where Maximilian was buried. Being from Mexico and having visited some of the historical locations in the motherland having to do with that whole episode, I thought it would be interesting to check out his crypt or wherever he was interred for myself. Well, before I was even able to finish asking where he may be, the guide gave me a really sour face and proceeded to explain to the entire group how Maximilian was tragically murdered in Mexico, to which I answered back that my understanding of events was that he was executed As the leader of a foreign nation that had unlawfully overthrown the true government of the people, surprisingly, she did not agree with my, as she put it, interpretation (laughs) of events, just goes to show how history can be interpreted depending on where or how you or yours were affected by it. So that was pretty cool. He gives this perspective for both countries here, (laughs) a a rare thing. And we also heard from Pedro, who um, said that, I just listened to your Maximilian podcast. And although it was a sad affair for poor Maximilian, I wanted to let you know that he's not seen as a bad guy in Mexico. At least that's something, right? Historians have done good work spreading the word that he was basically cheated into accepting the job and that he was actually rather cool toward Mexicans. Nevertheless, the myth of Juarez, his defense of Mexican rights remains a strong part of our chosen history. So I think most Mexicans will see Maximilian as some sort of failed conqueror. So two perspectives there on yeah. our, uh, our Habsburg emperor. That last one makes me feel a little better for poor Maximilian. I know a lot of people recommended a Kate Beaton comic too. Oh yeah, <laughs> basically, um, basically Pedro's email <laughs> sums up how how Maximilian is depicted in the comic. Uh, yeah, I, I just I like hearing, I think with the Ludwig one too, of Bavaria, I like hearing about how these historical figures are considered in different countries today, what people's opinions of them are
1: before we sign off with this listener mail, mega listener mail, mega segment, listener mail. Yes, we need to visit a segment that we have introduced recently, which we're having a lot of fun with and apparently listeners are too, and that's the I love it. I listen while I blank segment.
2: So, we're going to just run through a few of these and I think you're going to be Impressed by what your fellow listeners do while they're while they're checking out the podcast. So Melissa, for instance, in Jakarta, listens while she's riding a motorcycle taxi.
1: Rachel in Long Beach says, "My lab mates and I now listen and learn from you guys while sorting mud samples, identifying insects, and sequencing DNA."
2: Cool. Brian in uh, Ohio listens while working on a dairy farm. He says, I manage a 1,500-cow dairy farm in Ohio, and I check cows to determine if they are pregnant while I listen to stuff you missed in history. Thank you for giving me something interesting and fun to listen to while I'm out with the cows. You're very welcome, Brian. <laughs>
1: Margaret, who works at Albert Einstein University, says that she likes to listen to our podcast while trying to catch nematode worms for research. Wow. Jacob listens while
2: he or he listened while he took this huge bike trip from Shanghai to Beijing. So we went to China this year, Dablina, and we didn't even know it.
1: And Rebecca in Minneapolis says that she's a graduate student in industrial hygiene and she works in a mycology lab culturing fungal spores for identification and remediation. And that's what she does while she's listening to the podcast. I look at mold spores under microscopes.
2: And finally, we heard from 12-year-old Maddie, who listens so much that sometimes she said her mom takes away her iPod so that she won't stay up all night. (laughs) So we thought that was cute. Thank you, guys. We'll share some more on the next episode for sure, because y'all are doing some interesting things all over the world.
1: Yeah, And if you want to keep sharing those things with us, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Or you can look us up on Facebook, or you can hit us up on Twitter at Missed History. And as
2: always, you can find tons of articles on tons of topics and a year-end recap, I believe, a year-end slideshow recap of 2011 by searching our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. It'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is.
2: Happy Pride. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. I'm here to tell you about Lambda Legal. For more than 50 years, Lambda Legal has been in court protecting the civil rights of LGBTQ plus people and everyone living with HIV. And the good news is you can help. Support Lambda Legal's work by donating this Pride Month. Throughout June, all donations up to $100,000 will be matched. To donate, go to lambdalegal.org. That's L-A-M-B-D-A legal.org. Help Lambda Legal remain unstoppable.